This is News of the World, bringing you the most important news of the world. And the most important news of the world is that Germany has won the World Cup. So thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, oh, wait, Mark, you're still here. So maybe we could shed some light on some other oh, very just, important issues. I just wanted to say congratulations to Germany. Yay. I'm done. We did it. Yeah. Good job, by the way. Oh, yeah. The end. yeah. That was a hell of a party, I can tell you. <laughs> Is that what wins if we party the best? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's good. I, I always wondered how it would be like living in a country that has most recently won the World Cup. Uh, I know I I did that before <laughs> right, I was thinking, yeah. in the 90s, but it was all covered up by this whole reunification thingy anyway, so uh. you couldn't really make any difference between these two things. And at that time, everything was totally over the top anyway. So mm. now it's... Um, Yeah, better separated, and now I can start studying it. Wow, you're yeah. a scientist. Yeah, that's what we Germans love, you know. We like to take an organized look at things, you know. Oh, there's happiness coming along. Let's uh, look at this in a very serious way. Yes. <laughs> no, it yes. was great. <laughs> It's also an Austrian thing, right? I'm thinking of Freud. But anyway. Uh, yeah, and it, it was I mean it was really a world celebration once more. And I, I that that's what I love about, you know, football, soccer, however you want to call it. Mm. Uh and, and and this time even the US was, you know, just a tiny bit involved. That's good. It's good. Welcome to the world. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing. World Cup. When was that? Uh, no, I watched it. I did. I did. And I thought I did think the world was united in their dislike of Argentina, at least that night. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Or the stadium was united in their uh, dislike uh, of Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Brazil was definitely <laughs> in the boat. <laughs> so we had good support. Okay. In other news, you are not in Amsterdam. You are, as you promised, to be in the city of Moscow. Privet, Privet. Moscow. Yes. How, how do yeah. how do Moscovians call their city properly? Uh, I think the they they just Moscow. I don't I don't know. I, I, <laughs> they say it so fast. Uh, they just point. Ah. They point around us and they go. Mm, da. Ah. Yeah, Moscow, 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 Moscow. I don't know. Yeah, I read it everywhere uh, because there's no shortage of city uh, uh, buildings and departments and uh, police and alarms going off. I'm in a little apartment. No, wait, giant. There's no such thing as a little apartment in uh, in Moscow or the surrounding region. But I am just beyond the ring. And Moscovites say there is no life beyond the ring of Moscow. But I am beyond <laughs> the ring. Yeah, it's more affordable. To live okay. beyond the ring. Beyond so. the ring. That's where you are. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, out here beyond the ring is where I usually start my day. And then I take the uh, the massive transit system, uh, not just to metros, but I take these mashrutkas, these tiny little vans that people operate where they just pack people in and ask for money. And you don't always know where they're driving. Although I guess if you read better Cyrillic than I do, you uh, you would know. Uh, and uh, then you get to the metro. And then after an hour, you get into town. Uh, so I've been here in Moscow for just over a week, uh, for a total of, it's a 10 day trip for me and wow, what a world, uh, what a, what a strange, strange world, um, with a lot of familiar aspects. I mean, it is a, a city 
uh, with uh, its uh, cool places to go and its love for cool restaurants and plenty of cars. And it's, uh, I mean, it's not that different from the rest of the world. On the same hand, it's Moscow. It is a giant monster of a city, urban culture at its biggest and craziest. So I'm I'm both enjoying it, and I remember that I will leave, and I sort of breathe a sigh of relief. <sighs> I will get out of here eventually. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great town, <laughs> I guess. I wouldn't want to live here. So before we get to our first real topic that is probably about Moscow, but wh why are you there? Oh, I'm here because my, my dear partner, uh, she's, um, she's Russian. She grew up, uh, well, she lived in Moscow for her adult life before moving to Amsterdam, and uh, I'm here visiting family and meeting a lot of friends. And I've done uh, one podcast will come out uh, where I sat with uh, one of uh, our mutual friends that is a very good observer of Russia, culture, um, economics. So I was also here to sort of take notes and uh, basically getting an idea of, of what's going on in this country, what's going on with these people, especially. Um, strangely enough, in the context of, well, post-Sochi Olympics and what's going on in Ukraine and, yeah, always the LGBT question of what, what, how people are looking at uh, uh, homosexuality in general and how accepting they are, or as we know, not accepting. Yeah. So all these things are sort of in the back of my mind. But at the same time, I, I'm looking beyond these things because, as you know, when you live somewhere, you're just busy with the day-to-day. -day. No one's running around giving uh, speeches about Ukraine or... Uh, LGBT or even Putin on a daily basis. They're kind of just living their life. So I'm also been very interested to to see that that daily life and and how it is. If it's any good, uh, even for them. Never mind what I think. Uh, how they say life is. So that's what I've been doing. Okay. Breaking yeah. break, breaking news. Moscovians keep on living yeah, they, their life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Breaking news, <laughs> Moscovians are really busy, and, um, and they don't all have opinions about things. Uh, they just kind of, their opinion is, uh, what's for dinner? And, uh, man, I have more work to do. I'm going to stay late today. And that probably sounds familiar. So, but but yeah. things have happened. There was a, a severe accident recently, in the like two, three days ago. Yeah, it was yesterday. It would have been around yesterday. this time that you and I are talking. Uh, one of the metro lines, uh, not far from where I'm sitting, uh, there was a derailment. Of course, there's a big debate about what was it, how did it happen. Some say a power surge, uh, which you would hope your metro was prepared for. But this mammoth of a metro system, I think one of the longest in the world, also the oldest, uh, right up there with, uh, I guess, the tube in London. By the way, I think the garbage collection is going on outside, so you get some sound effects of... Of Himki, uh, just outside of Moscow, but um, uh, yeah, the, the, a train derailed, and there were I think around 20 deaths and 140 injuries. And this metro system was built for a city at that time, anyway, of just over a million. Now it's a city of 11 million people, and the metro every day is, is sees about nine million people running through it. And it is packed. It is, I would say, it's bursting at the seams. I'm sure the city of Moscow would say, it's all under control. Uh, <laughs> it is all under control. No problem. We can handle it. We are Moscovites. Uh, move along. 
Exactly. Uh, so, you know, when you look at the system, there's so many people in the trains, going out, going in. You can see how accidents like this could happen. Also, the trains are, although there's some new ones uh, running around from the last three or four years, there's a lot of old ones that look like they're from the 50s. And uh, maybe those are the most reliable. I don't know. That's why they, they keep using them and they don't try to upgrade them. But uh, it's uh, even just the Metro is a fascinating world. It punches you in the face in a way. You get very tired just by taking a few trains. And, uh, you know, they have some of the deepest metro stations in the world because, among other reasons, they were preparing for nuclear war. And so keep the stations deep. You know, we'll, we'll be able to survive. And actually, I was reading, I've, I've been reading a lot of different uh, stories of the Metro. Allegedly, there's a Metro 2, which was for the leadership uh, of then the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you were supposed to be able to escape the Kremlin and a few key security buildings and a few select people uh, to repopulate the, the what would be Russia in the future. Um, apparently, there's a Metro 2 somewhere, but it's never been confirmed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's somehow the pride of, of the city also. I mean, it's kept very clean from what I've oh, heard. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's their museums down there. It's the statues, the mosaics. I, it's a wonder that Moscovites aren't walking around every day with their heads up looking at the ceiling like, wow. I guess they get so used to it, of course, but anyone, you can always tell a tourist because they're looking up and you can't blame them. It's beautiful. No one does a metro like, like this city. Um, I, I can't believe, actually, as they build new stations, that they even try to match what was done in the, in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Um, I, I have seen some new stations. There's less art, but still huge uh, halls with marble and, and very expensive materials. They still do it very grand uh, underground in this city. And overground, you know, there's a lot of fanciness too. It is one of the most expensive cities in the world. <coughs> I, it's dropped down. I was looking at the list. Moscow is now something like number nine. Uh, I don't know if that's world or Europe. Uh, so it was once in the top five. I think the reason that it dropped is the ruble, the currency here has... Oh, you mean the top five of, uh, being the most expensive city? Yes. I yeah. think it's on the world list, yes. Yeah, yeah. It would, it would be somewhere in the top 10 worldwide. Uh, and this has a lot to do with part of the reason that I'm beyond the ring. Uh, real estate is very expensive, even for ugly buildings, uh, ugly giant apartment buildings that you know some, many of us wouldn't dare go in. Uh, people here, these are, these are valuable. They're, they're worth 300, 400,000 euros. Uh, you know, you could buy two places in Berlin for the price of one crappy, what I would say crappy, no offense, Moscow, uh, <laughs> apartment uh, in a giant building would be. Uh, so, so the cost of living here is crazy. Um, and it's amazing that people manage or do they? And that's the big question, you know, do they manage? Um, when we, when I was in Dubai, we talked a little bit about people doing labor, you know, building, uh, construction and they're living in these camps, right? And it's always a big controversy. The government doesn't want the world to be focusing on this too much. It's a little bit embarrassing. Well, here on a construction site, workers, they live right on the site in a little container and they pee in a porta john and, and I guess they shower, I don't know where, um, and that's just normal. Like you have dozens of people living on construction sites. And of course, they're, they could be Russian, but they're probably Uzbek, uh, Kyrgyzstan. You know, they're, they're from a former Russian republic and they may or may not be, uh, 
you know, officially here. They, they could be under sort of undocumented people. Uh, so it's, um, it's not a pretty world uh, when you start to look between the, the very good-looking buildings and the, the flash of Moscow, because there is so much flash. Um, people are very into looking good, and that's another thing you notice as you walk around town. Uh, you, you were here once upon a time, wouldn't, weren't you, Tim? Uh, in Moscow, no, I wasn't. Oh, yeah. I'll put that on the list of places to. No, I, I think I made it to to Lithuania, uh, Estonia. That's yeah. Yeah. during ba- ba- the Baltic republics and, and Finland. That's like the closest I was coming to 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 Russia. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a fascinating world, and you know, it's the one that is so often the subject, not just on this show, but of so much media, right? Russians, the Russian government, what the Russians are doing. And and then you're here and you kind of forget, you know, if, if I didn't look up uh, news stories, I wouldn't know what was happening in the Ukraine because on the street, nobody is talking about it, or at least, you know, not to me. Um, and uh, maybe that's part of the uneasiness of, well, you know, we we as regular people didn't really want to get involved or or did or we don't know. That's not our thing. Um, and that was also the subject of my of my podcast, uh, which I recorded yesterday. This whole thing of, you know, people look at the government as something they can't really control and isn't, you know, OK, it's just there. It's ours. I don't know. Is it? <laughs> um, Nothing and, uh, we can do about it. No. And the only thing I've noticed is that now there's apparently a website. It's probably become an app where if you see something wrong uh, as a citizen of Moscow, like a pothole or trash, which <laughs> there really is trash in different places anyway, but um, you can take a picture and send it to the, the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. And this mayor is supposed to be, like, he's taking care of it. And they say, like, it, it brings results, which is a huge deal. Well, there goes a car alarm, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of course, this is a complete car culture. People drive everywhere. Um, it's constant traffic all day long, and yet people just drive into it like, oh yeah, traffic. You know, there's there's very little avoiding of traffic going on in this country, um, and it's a city where, in the middle of the city, you will see an eight to ten lane road, five cars going one way, five cars going the other way, and you're in the middle of the city. It's uh, it's bizarre. I, why they don't end this? Well, I guess it's too late. Like, there's too many people that rely on these roads. But um, in that sense, this city is not fun you know you 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 get tired of the the constant traffic uh thankfully you could walk away from it and go into side streets i've been in beautiful areas of moscow yesterday i went to looking for the planetarium um and even though the planetarium is on a crazy road but and the neighborhood around it it gets kind of quiet or maybe better where was i i don't know i've been in a few neighborhoods with with just reminded me of new york city like the nice parts of new york city the quieter uh smaller parts so this place has a lot of different faces. I think the most common one that we remember is things like the Metro and Red Square and, and these crazy roads. And that's true, but there's also quieter corners. It's just that, uh, I don't know, they're not as famous or they're not loud, so you don't remember them. Um, so I mean, yeah, Moscow is hard to, hard to pin down in one sentence or, or even one text. I think I wrote a text recently about how it punches you in the face, you know, kind of when you get on the Metro and people and noise but that's not totally true i've come to realize like yeah, it punches you in the face and then it kind of pats you on the back later as a city <laughs> can a city do these things i don't know um so it it has its charm but uh living here whew, it seems like a 
a daunting task. People are, are really strong here. Like uh, to live this every day, you, you need a certain amount of strength. Um, so it's interesting, and and that kind of I guess leads us into some of the news stories because as I'm here, some big things are going on in um, in Eastern Ukraine. And uh, let me let me ask me uh, ask, ask oh, you one sure. more question because you were talking about all these uh, infrastructure problems in the city. Um, then there was this huge investment into uh, Sochi, uh, the Winter Olympics. Um, yeah. I wonder how this has turned out in the public eye. And, uh, you know, after the Olympics is just before the World Cup, you know, in four years, yeah. uh, the Football World Cup is is moving to Russia. They got it. I didn't know that. Right, right. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's already a heavy discussion going on again on like the need for new stadiums and they're spending <laughs> an awesome amount of money on the stadiums. And uh, yeah. if there was... a Anybody totally outraged about the money spent on the uh, uh, World Cup infrastructure in Brazil is going to be nothing compared to what Russia has in mind <laughs> this time. You know, like huge stadiums and again built into cities uh, yeah. that don't even have a, a, a team playing in one of the first two leagues. And uh, it's more <laughs> or less the same story than you had in Brazil Uh, especially in in Manaus, you know, like this this Amazon city that you know yeah. has a huge stadium that was just no team able to to fill. Maybe that might change, you know, but that's one. Uh, as from what I've heard on in Russia, it's going to be like three, four cities that you know suffer the, the same fate. So again, a lot of money is being poured into these uh, investments for a big event, and doesn't really look like. Improving the metro system for Moscow or uh, any other means that might actually help. Well, what's what's amazing metro-wise is look. Even during World War II, they were building new stations. I don't I don't know how they do this. And right now, there is something like eight boring machines, you know, the, the below ground, mm -hmm. um, working on new stations and new new um, tracks. And I mean, this is crazy. In Amsterdam, we we thought it was a big deal when we had two boring machines making one new line. It was it was a huge deal. And it yes. won't happen again for a very long time. Um, Moscow is constantly expanding its its metro system, apparently. Okay. And uh, when you look at the map, you can see it's it's pretty complicated. Um, I was reading that, yeah, indeed, you know, the, the World Cup will eventually be here. What is that, 2018 or something? 2016? 18. And 18. And um, there are certain stations that are not very heavily used. I was looking up these sort of, you know, the, the secret metro and then metro stations that maybe aren't in use because New York has a few of those very beautiful stations that some urban explorers find. Anyway, they, they pointed out that one of the ones that was built and isn't very heavily used at all, they even considered closing, well, they're going to build a stadium there. So that'll make itself valuable again. Um, but indeed, th this country intends to, again, be the, m the most expensive World Cup because it'll be worth it and it'll you know, be, bring a lot of profit for the country and benefits. Well, I was asking some people here who, who deal in the economics world, what about Sochi, right? What, what, what happened now? Now, first of all, there's the question of, you know, what happens to all these buildings. And that part, people here can't really tell you because they don't go there. Um, that you can look up a bit. There's already some blogs uh, about empty buildings, things falling apart. I think they're exaggerating a little right now. Like they'll take a hole in a pathway and say, see, it's collapsing. <laughs> I, I've seen a lot of websites where they're really reaching for... The ground's moving. Yeah. I've seen There it. were some wires coming out of the ground and the caption was, uh, construction site never finished. 
I'm like, well, okay, yeah, but... So I think it'll still take a little more time before we see the neglect coming through. But um, it turns out, at least according to the Sochi Olympic Committee, uh, Russia Today, which uh, I, I fully recognize is not always a, a very impartial news source as being funded by the Russian government, they say Sochi made a profit, a profit of, uh, what, uh, $22 million, uh, U.S. dollars. Uh, and that's that's on top of what was already a, well, not on top, but it was a $6 billion investment or, or cost, basically, these games, uh, 2.7 from the government and then the rest from sponsors and so forth. So they made back the money they spent, allegedly, and they made a profit. They announced it in public and so forth, $22 million. I mean, it's not tons of money, but it's it's a profitable Olympic Games. I don't think that's happened in, in three or two or three Olympics. Um, and that, not to always criticize everything that anything Russian uh, says, but uh, I would love to see the ins and outs of that because how did they do it? Uh, I understand there's tax uh, income, you know, from restaurants and, and, and things sold and ticket sales and, and even airline tax if you came to Sochi. But at least from over here, people and people know this, Russian people know this. Oh, yeah, it was profitable. Uh, this is interesting. You know, they consider it a huge success. And if you Google a bit Sochi Olympics, any Western analysis by, I think, some smart people, but I'm not sure, says this, like all Olympics, but this one especially, uh, loss of a lot of money. So it's uh, it's really hard to say, but here it's a huge success and profit made investment coming back to the country. Hmm. Yeah, someone even said to me, "There's a lot of road construction in Moscow right now, or maybe there always is." And they said, "Oh yeah, that's Sochi money." And I was like, "Really? That's Sochi money?" But yeah. Uh, so that's the story, and and this will just cause people to be perhaps completely fine with a very expensive World Cup. In uh, in Russia in a few years, <laughs> I wonder I wonder how this is has been calculated. Like, um, really I, makes I, me wonder. I mean, they spent yeah. something like six billion dollars on it. Yeah. Well, one last thing, and I'm I've come to understand it a little better, just in terms of people working for the Olympics, all volunteers. I mean, I'm here staying with a friend, and uh, she has a roommate. And I think uh, her and a bunch of friends, they were volunteers. They have Sochi t-shirts. I see it every now and then, or, or little items from the thing. They gave them food, clothes, in some cases paid for the flight over to Sochi. And that's it. And all these people working for the games. I mean, I know it's only one aspect. All volunteers and people all over Russia, it's a lot of people, wanted this job. They wanted to work for free for these Olympic Games to be near it. Okay, that's already one area where it's like, oh, okay, uh, not a lot of cost there. But yeah, that still doesn't explain where $6 billion uh, comes from, to, to, and, and then a little more profit on top of that. Don't know. I don't know. But the Olympics are supposed to be transparent about their, their costs, right? I mean, that's, that's part of the deal. So we should be able to look this stuff up. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure this number is really telling the story um, from what I've googling right now it's somehow like just the the balance sheet of the organizing committee that doesn't really consider 
uh, investments into infrastructure at all. So I don't know. We should probably look this up before we distribute yeah. this uh, as news. But yeah, no. The no word, this is just the word out of Russia. That's all. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's the word on the street <laughs> uh, in Russia. So... Let's move on to other places that are not as far away. And you already <laughs> mentioned there is news yeah. on the eastern Ukraine where this, um, yeah, I'm not so sure how to call it. It's a kind of a war. It could be yeah. a civil war. It could be, I don't know, at least it's a military conflict going on now for almost half a year. Somehow yeah. uh, or the other, uh, we had the uh, crisis in the Krim before. It's mostly over because Russia has just just you know put their hands on this area and doesn't really give anybody the impression that they will ever give it back so i think that chapter is closed for now but the fights in eastern ukraine are still going on and yeah. it's uh, although they the government has recently made a significant process in regaining certain areas uh, yeah. there's still this uh, holdout in uh, donetsk uh, oh, yeah. and uh, fighting has been increasing significantly significantly yeah. Yeah, the Ukrainian government, I guess, ever since they got their new president and time, really, to, to organize themselves. I read an interview with the president who says um, we weren't uh, equipped for the kind of war we have to fight or the battle we have to fight. Now we are, which essentially means, you know, now the Ukrainian military is ready to, not to be too literal here, but to fire on the people in Donetsk, you could say other Ukrainians, or you could say rebels, they say terrorists. Um, yeah, there is a war. I mean, this is a civil war, and there's a third party in this war, although, again, mixed reviews, whether or not they're really in it here in Russia, they say, we're not in it. Um, and I'm talking about this, you have the people who have declared independence in Donetsk and Luhansk, and you have the Ukrainian government who says, no, you're not independent. Um, and then you have the Russians who say... Not much, clearly, but they say uh, we support the right of people to be, what, independent, right? They use the Kosovo argument now, which they were once against, but now they're for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and the, 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 the where this thing gets even more complicated during Crimea, we, there was a lot of stories of Russian paramilitaries or Russian soldiers that came in to help. Uh, now, in eastern Ukraine, those stories still get around. And again, around here, at least the average person says, no, we don't, we don't believe there are Russian soldiers in, uh, in Donetsk or Luhansk. I don't think they need Russian soldiers in Luhansk or, or, uh, because people are already quite motivated to be independent. That much is clear. Um, you know, maybe some equipment. That's, that's the big question. So the most recent episode, although there's going to be more because this thing keeps getting worse, uh, there was an airstrike. And here's where life gets so confusing right now. An airstrike hits an apartment building, which again, why? Uh, I guess they use the logic that, oh, there are terrorists living in there. Okay. Um, it killed 11 people. This building collapsed. Uh, another house was destroyed near it. Um, and immediately the rebels who don't have planes say, well, you see, this is the Ukrainian government. Ukrainian government says, We didn't send any planes out. There were actually no planes out. I guess you can look this up somehow. Uh, it wasn't us. Mm -hmm. um, and the only other military in this region that could do such a, an airstrike would be the Russians. But they don't say the Russians you know, did an airstrike. They just say, well, if it wasn't us, 
it, it, who else could it have been? You know, so they kind of give this innuendo that Russia is involved. Russia says we're not involved. We didn't do it. Um, these are some kind of mistakes coming from the Ukrainian government bombing its own people or whatever. They even invited uh, some kind of international observers or military attaches, it's been called, to the Russian border, which is very nearby, to see what the damage, to see what's going on, and to sort of confirm that Russia isn't firing anything or sending any planes out. Uh, it, it, this is a bizarre situation. Um, the man I mention very often, Olaf Kuhn's uh, Dutch correspondent, who's always in Ukraine lately, he just came back, actually. He's in town right now. I'm, I don't know if I'll see him. But he's been in Donetsk with the rebels. Um, he sort of embedded himself with the rebels. And uh, what he shows is rebels ready to fight, just waiting for Ukraine to come into the city. And that's what they haven't really done, right? They're, they're taking over different smaller places. They're kind of eating around the edge because the hard part, really hard, is to take, or, or whatever word you want to use, um, battle in these cities. Because people are ready to fight. They're, they've got the weapons and you know the, the, most of it makeshift. Um, and that's going to be really, if this was bad, it's going to get really bad if the Ukrainian government goes into these cities. Um, I don't know if this is the way to take your country back, to be honest. Because even if you take them back you'll make more people angry by killing their family members. So this is a no-win situation for the Ukrainian government um, and maybe a no-win situation for the rebels because they're, they risk a lot of losses here. So mm -hmm. the, the, this continues, and it's, it's unbelievable. It's happening right now. It's happening during the World Cup. It's happening while everyone just walks around, you know, doing their life in, in places like Moscow. Uh, it's bizarre. I don't know. No good can come of this, I would say. But the interesting, what I find interesting, maybe it's just a lack of news or a lack of news consumption during the World Cup. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, once uh, Poroshenko has taken over as the Ukrainian president, somehow this general crisis of who is leading the country has sort of ended. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's uh, some kind of at least temporary uh, ag uh, uh, agreement on on the new leaders, you know. It would seem uh, so, yeah. And, 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 and that's what we've looked at before in the half year of uh, crisis, that it was like, you know, who's going to lead us? Is there right. a, a, the, the president legal or even right. if he's legal, you know, is he doing the right thing? Yeah. And somehow this guy um, at least managed to, you know, get the country focused on something, which might yes, be easy true. in terms of war, you know. It could be that once this conflict is somehow... I don't know, resolved in any way, uh, or at least pausing that then people wake up to the real problems and then uh, discussion is out on the street again. Maybe it's already the case, I don't know. But yeah. nevertheless, it's, uh, it gives me the impression that, that this is a, a totally new agenda now uh, going on True. here, that it's all about this conflict in eastern Ukraine, Uh, there's still this pending question on the Crimea, which is probably not going to be solved uh, anytime uh, soon. But apart from then, he's sort of moving on with the um, strategy of opening up the Ukraine to uh, Europe. You know, yeah. they have signed the deal with the EU uh, right. for like further uh, cooperation and collaboration. Mm -hmm. That was once the, the reason this whole riot started, you know, this just yes. happened and no, nobody is talking about it anymore. Even yep. uh, uh, Georgia has signed the same deal, 
you know. Yeah. So it's very interesting that somehow I don't know if you could say the Russian strategy isn't working, you know. Uh, okay, maybe they've got their uh, harbor back, you know. They have uh, Crimea. They now have the problem of, you know, um, also putting a lot of money into this region, you know. Yes. Well, yeah, they, they should they, you know. Um, yeah. But everything else seems to be kind of lost for them. Uh Maybe, maybe. I, I, I don't know. You know, this, this has become so confusing because now we're talking, Crimea, they want it. The government wanted, a lot of people felt, uh, Russian people felt like Crimea was part, they, the Crimeans felt like they were part of Russia. So this was a more, uh, less confusing situation in some ways. But now you're dealing with a region that doesn't want to be part of Ukraine, wants to be part of Russia as far as I can understand, but Russia itself doesn't necessarily want them. Uh, so this is this is bizarre. Or at least they play the game, right? Like the oh, we don't really want you. With Crimea, they just flat out Russians don't usually dance around what they want. Uh, that that much I know. Uh, yeah. And so now you know they're not outright saying we want Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, so it, it's a bizarre situation. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess we talked about this before. I still have the impression that the Russia uh, is somehow interested in destabilizing the region, you know, just to keep things moving and, and, and uh, <sighs> maybe for new opportunities for Russia to, to, to uh, make use of. But I, I don't really think they're interested in that area because the er no. area isn't in any way strategic for Russia, you know, it just extends its borders, you know, a few yeah. kilometers further west, but there's not so much to win. On the other hand, there's a lot of uh, trouble coming into the country because then you have uh, this whole conflict with the remaining R Ukrainians, you know, who just yeah. don't want to be part They're, of Russia. Right. So right. that is potentially uh, just a new area of uh, conflict on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, it's also this industrial coal uh, yeah. mining region, you know, that doesn't really have a future anyway. You know, and That's true. the light yeah. of the uh, new economy, yeah. New, yeah. Uh, new economy tendencies. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I don't think they are interested at all. And they're just uh, all those who keep fighting are sort of fighting a war they can't win. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think there's it's really down the road. But if these places become part of Russia, even Crimea, well, they, they are. But um, what they expect to get the benefits They may be severely disappointed, and what happens then, right? Are they angry? Do they become defiant to the central government and want independence? This is always the problem, right? You expect a better life. That's why you fight. That's why you become either independent or join another country. And what happens when you don't get what you, what you thought you were going to get? I mean, that's, that's another aspect. And by the way, the rhetoric, you, you just pointed out something very interesting, that at least what we can see uh, in the international press outside of Ukraine there has become this sort of unity for the current conflict, Ukraine keeping its regions as part of its, within its borders. Um, but over in Donetsk, the rhetoric has remained, fascists have taken over Ukraine. That's yeah. how they talk, right? I mean, that's, they're going to keep talking that way no matter what. So all these interviews now from victims or people in the area where these attacks are taking place, they still say, oh, the fascists in Kiev. And this rhetoric really sold, has been sold. You know, they, they, they bought it. Uh, yeah, yeah, Kiev has been taken over by fascists, so but, we but can't it's no longer it's no longer sold in Russia, isn't it? I mean, that's what I heard. I don't think that, so. The, the, I think the, you're the right. public yeah. rhetoric yeah. has has changed. So uh, yeah, and that's also a sign for True. Russia somehow. You know, okay, we 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 got what we could get easily. You know, 
Yeah. Uh, but we'll see, we see that this conflict, like if we push more resources into it and we stir up more uh, anger and hate, you know, we're only going to lose because they have felt the uh, reaction of the West and being kicked out of G8 and being, you know, sort of um, uh, the victim of new sanctions and so on. It's not that they don't care about this at all. It, well, you know. Right, right. I mean, it matters to a certain extent. Although they never underestimate the, I don't know if it's stubbornness or the the desire to go it alone in this country. Yeah. I mean, the average, well. Yeah, I but they have the average, lost, but, I mean, I don't know yeah. the most recent numbers, but I think in the half year, they have sort of lost capital that has been oh, retrieved yeah. from, from Russia uh, in the amount of like what they've lost in the last three years, and it has been you know it has been going down anyway, but this has accelerated significantly. This means it takes away money from companies, takes money away from the economy, you know. And whatever politics says, if the economy and their leaders mm -hmm. just see their money go, mm -hmm. and that basically means it, it it goes because without these investments they can't really make the progress they they uh, like to do you know yeah. that's when they turn to the president and say like mm, maybe you know not anymore yeah um and that's it, it i have the impression that we are at that point you know it's still not a situation where they want uh, a change in government you know and i don't think that we're going to see a change in government anytime soon mr putin no. is going to serve the next two uh oh, is yeah. it is it when are the next elections doesn't matter he'll till he's uh, dead till he's dead he'll yeah, he'll, yeah he's he'll just going yeah. he's just going to be the guy unless yeah. he has some kind of epiphany where he wants to retire and relax that could be something but i don't even know if he has that in him no he'll he'll never leave and and they they'll have him they they like him very much i mean it's it's uh, that much has become obvious to me uh, but <laughs> and one last thing on on ukraine and again a russian listening to this would laugh at us because we're we're grasping at little you know little things here but that's mm -hmm. what we do um, I'm impressed being here in, in Russia at the way Ukraine is seen. Ukrainians. Ukraine is such a common reference. You walk around town, Kiev has its name on a lot of things. You know, it's, it's a name they, they know. It's like family. Um, I was here staying at this house with a Ukrainian who was visiting. He was a couch surfer. And, uh, he, you know, he goes around town like it's his third home. You know, no big deal. And people know that he's Ukrainian, I think, when he talks. But it's Again, it's no big deal. This whole aspect, like, politically, governments had a conflict. But people-wise, I don't think people here turned against Ukraine at all. Uh, which I, I had suspected, yes, I thought they would act weird. I thought they would be, I don't know, you know, hostile towards Ukrainians. Not at all. It's still family. Uh, or neighbors, however you want to call it. You know, similar language, common past. There you go. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this matters. This is, perhaps this is why, no matter what the media-created conflict that existed, or, or physically <laughs> there was a conflict, um, it, it passes quickly because there's so much in common between these two places, or at least such a, such a strong history. So, yeah, I don't know. Ukraine, it's, it's bad, though. Eastern Ukraine makes me very sad. And that's, that's where I'll leave it for today. Okay. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, while all this is going on, and this one you do hear in the in the mainstream media more often, Iraq in general is a story, of course, and we've been covering it as best we can. But the Kurdish army, uh, they've made some advances in the north. Now, in 
Iraq right now, you have, of course, the Iraqi government that has Baghdad and everything south of that. But you also have the IS, the Islamic State. What a horrible generic name. Uh, I think it should have something more colorful, perhaps. Well, it's usually referred to as ISES. Uh, ISIS, like no, no, but ISIS, much cooler name-wise. You know, it's got four letters. It has kind of a ISIS, kind of cold. Uh, they declared that their state is now called the IS, the is uh, the, oh. yes, the Islamic State. Oh, That's, I see. This is really like you declaring your city to just be called, you know, the city. <laughs> Or yeah, yeah, it's like US Catholic and city. IS now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really yeah. U.S. is also kind of generic, and they probably thought that when it first because there are a lot of U.S.s, right? The United States of Mexico, there's the United States of Brazil. The, people don't know this is in the titles of these countries, uh, and then the U.S. declares itself the U.S. There's lots of United States. Right, anyway, so we have the Islamic State, which is in Iraq, although not recognized, rightfully so, by a lot of the world. But we know they've got power, right? And the Kurds in the north, right, long having settled their area, though not independent, they wanted to have an independence vote, but of course that's all been tabled while the Iraqi government is trying to get control of the country. So the Kurdish army, uh, much like the government that has been active and organized, they've now taken key oil facilities uh, in, in the north, facilities that weren't formerly in their, in their territory. And this is sort of a strange situation because you had ISIS versus the Iraqi government and the Kurds technically against ISIS, right? They don't want ISIS coming into their territory. Um, but now the Kurds have gone on the offensive and taken a chunk there of, of Iraq, a very financially important chunk. And the Iraqi government, which is already having its problems with ISIS, is now very angry at the Kurds or at least speaking uh, out against what they're doing because they're, they kicked out the state oil employees, sent them back to Baghdad somehow uh, or, or wherever. And now the Kurds have a significant amount of oil production. I saw one analysis that said if things stay as they are, like with what they've got, they've got one-third of Iraq's oil reserves. Of course, they're part of Iraq, so it's not like they stole necessarily, but they've definitely expanded their region there. And uh, there's a lot of discussion now. Are they going to be exporting oil? Apparently, they've already started to try, at least through Turkey. And Turkey's kind of okay with this. I guess it involves making some profit. Uh, and, of course, we know the U.S. is an ally of the Kurdish government. Not that there's a country, but there's a government. And so they're, they're making moves uh, in the middle of all this chaos. A lot of analysis say Kurds are taking advantage of, of the chaos in Iraq. Um, I have some pity here for the Iraqi government because they're not just facing one strong enemy. Now there's a, it's not an enemy, but it's a, an, another thing uh, threatening the existence of what is a, a disappearing country. Um, so it's not clear if they're going to keep control of these oil refineries. Maybe they're just controlling it temporarily until the state gets you know stable again but that's the story so far you know kurdish army takes oil refineries in northern iraq there i mean you said that uh kirkuk wasn't really under the influence of the kurdish um people which uh, kirkuk yeah i would go with that yeah 
which it actually well kind of was i mean it's, it's a very disputed area it's mm -hmm. it's right at the borders of the you know traditional living grounds of ethnic groups like especially the kurds and the sunnites and armenians and some other ethnic groups i forgot mm -hmm. and uh there was for years there was the plan of doing a referendum if yeah. Kirkuk should be a Kurdish city. So that's sort of, which has never happened uh, so far. And mm -hmm. of course, the uh, Iraqi government wasn't really interested in giving Kirkuk away, especially because it's all so close and tied to the uh, oil refinement industry. Mm -hmm. And so the situation now where uh, the Iraqi government has basically lost control of the area, but somehow the Kurds have gained back or at least temporarily have yeah. gained back that uh, control it's sort of strengthening the the situation of the Kurds. not sure how long this is going to last but in general i think it's very interesting to look at what the kurdish group has sort of achieved i say this in quotes yeah. uh over the time because During all those conflicts, they have always focused, at least in my view, uh, always focused on like, okay, there's conflict. And the same goes for Iraq as it goes for Syria. It's like, we are sort of concentrating on our area. I mean, the Kurdish have never, ever tried to claim areas that, you know, they are not related with. It's not that mm -hmm. they have been sort of conquering grounds to expand the territory and so on. They were totally focused on their traditional area and trying to uh, get this working. They even had sort of working community work, sort of temporary governments. There's this autonomous sure. uh, region now that uh, kind of works and, and, and <laughs> isn't like a totally disaster. I mean, that that's something... That's something already in oh, the yeah. uh, area, okay. you know, just to have found some kind of control of your area. Uh, that's not a total disaster. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't really aware that they had this uh, so well-organized army that is now actually capable of doing more than just securing their their area. You know, yeah. maybe that's just part They of a military job that you could also strike. Yeah, I've I've been also impressed by maybe we shouldn't exaggerate the how much they support, but you know Turkey is uh, okay with them, and uh, the United States, of course, is uh, is a friend, considered a friend. They look at Kurds as big allies, conservatives and and liberals. Um, so Turkey yeah, is supporting Kurdistan. That's what you say, like yeah, it's like really another uh, the 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 fiend of my fiend is. I guess so. I, yeah. Support might be even too strong, so so maybe I went too far, but they're okay with it. Yeah, they're sort of accepting it as a better solution. I mean, right. they are still very biased when it comes to Kurds in the Turkey in there, area. Right, right. They're probably not willing to give up uh, parts of their country to, to give it under mm -hmm. control. But I have always been thinking about hmm. why doesn't the world community somehow at least things about giving an autonomous region to the Kurds because they have sort of shown to be the only one who can really take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think ever since uh, Israel, they, uh, the world community is uh, really scared to ever again... Um, oh, yeah, give just a region <laughs> to... Yeah, yeah, okay, although, I understand Although there are this. probably more Kurds, actually, in what would be Kurdistan than there were uh, uh, 
Jewish people in, in Israel. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a different situation. But I yeah, mean, it's yeah. been taken away from them. There's no dispute yeah. that they have been showing to be really uh, a well-established uh, uh, ethnic group who has always lived in that area. It's like not you know, yeah. it's not that they have been moved there. It's not that they have right. like oh yeah, take this right. area because we can't give you the original one. We're really talking about the core heartland of uh, Kurdistan. There is their yeah. own language, there True. is their own tradition, and they have sort of shown in all those conflicts that they are both not an aggressor mm -hmm. you know and capable of taking care of themselves so in yeah. a way i think yeah. everybody would be better off you know but <laughs> then there's also uh, a kurdish area in iran uh yeah. although slightly smaller i guess um yeah but that's just my personal yeah. dream here in that uh, situation but it's always interesting to look at the situation and now that they also have Uh, at least for now, control over the oil industry, you know, this gives them uh, uh, the possibility of a serious income. And, and uh, oh, yeah. I know they are really also working on pipelining and so on. Yeah. So they are not only defending their country right now, they are actually working on it and, 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 and building infrastructure. And I find yeah. this uh, quite fascinating. Oh, yeah. I think they're a unique case in this world, no doubt. And especially in terms of what's another word for it? They've had success here. Mm -hmm. uh, They're, they're closer to a country than they were, I think, 10 years ago. They're closer to having their own country. And that's, that's something. Yeah. 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 And they're not only asking for it, they're just like building it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're not waiting around. People yeah. love that in this world. Oh, they're go-getters. Oh. <laughs> I'm not waiting for you to give me a country. I'm, I've already, look, I've already started building it while you weren't paying attention. <laughs> True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, we have to cruise through a few other items. I know we've we've been heavy on the on the Russia, and and now we're only now getting into the rest of the world. So maybe we'll move faster. But uh, have to mention, of course, um, I guess we caught the beginning of this current uh, wave uh, of violence in Israel and Palestine, which started. I'll say, of course, this all started long ago. But the latest episode started with the this kidnapping and killing of. Um, of Israeli teenagers that, that became headlines for a little while there. Yeah, Now, I, I, I guess there were religious uh, students, which made the case more, even more. Yeah. yeah. And, and of, of course, any, any Palestinian could point out, well, actually look, this started. So there yeah, is no, you did it first, really. <laughs> no, but, absolutely not. But in the international press and in the eyes of some in this, uh, not very, you know, doing research world, Uh, it started with his teenagers, right? And then there were reprisals, revenge actions against Palestinian teens, and then all of a sudden it became just dangerous to be a teenager. It already probably was in some parts of this region, but uh, now it's gone back to, you might think this is 2012 or something, or one of those other years. Uh, Israel has been doing an offensive. They even have a catchy name. Uh, I don't know, Protective Edge. Ugh, I hate... I think the U.S. names wars much better than Israel does. Like, it's always so... I don't know, diplomatic with, with Israel, like, oh, protective edge. I like a good eagle or a, <laughs> you know, freedom. Anyway, uh, so they've been bombing Gaza. Uh, and uh, Netanyahu, I noticed a, an interview or a press conference uh, this week where he said things I haven't seen him say ever or lately, but I know that he thinks based on his actions. Um, you know, he's saying, hey, rest of the world, you may be critical of what we're doing, but... You don't know what it's like. So, okay, we've heard this before. Um, and meanwhile, of course, from Gaza, 
the rocket attacks happen and they hit places in Israel, usually along the border. So at this point, we've got 192 people uh, dead in Gaza. I think that number is now increased because today Israel launched another uh, uh, bombing raid. Um, even Netanyahu advised Palestinians in Gaza to leave their homes as another wave of bombings was to begin. Of course, this is confusing for me. I mean, Gaza is a large open air prison. Okay, it's a city, but it's a prison. You can't really get anywhere. Where are you going to go? Out of your house, I guess. But, you know, wh- where do you go for safety? I have no idea. Um, and he's told people to get out of their homes because they're going to start bombing. Um, you know, Hamas is defiant. They didn't want a, a, even a ceasefire that was offered um, uh, yesterday. Uh, I saw several news items where rockets had fallen in Israel and people were very angry saying, look, we were negotiating a ceasefire and look what they did. This also confuses me because we act as if uh, the Palestinian Authority or Gaza specifically has an army and Israel has an army. Now, Israel does have an army. We know this. The Hamas and and Gaza, they have their their militants. I think there's also just a lot of people who are angry and have weapons. So this is also very confusing when you say, hey, we had a ceasefire. You fired a rocket because I have no idea if Hamas can really control who's firing rockets over there. So we always act as if it was an order from the the local government. I have no idea if it was. In Israel, we do. We know who flies F-16s, and this is sort of regulated. Um, So we have another conflict. Egypt negotiated a ceasefire. As I said, that's now gone, I guess. Didn't happen. Egypt also doesn't have the power it used to in this region, uh, I thought I'd mention. And uh, I don't know when this is going to end. Some people rumored that there would be a ground invasion, uh, which, again, would be a disaster for people in Gaza. And uh, I don't, you know, this is this is just a repeat. I, I, I just over and over again, this, this business. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a repeat, but it's also worth mentioning. I mean, when you say, like, uh, Israel has been bombing Gaza, yes, they have, but Gaza has been bombing Israel, too. I mean... But it's not uh, the same. S- since... But I mean, understood. It's, it's it's not the same in terms of the, the general power both sides have, you know. Yeah. But it's yeah. uh, also there's no legitimate. Uh, it's not legitimate to you know send all those rockets over to Israel either. I mean, it's like right. they have launched I don't know how many hundreds of rockets, and they have been yeah. improving. They have been improving the technology so much that I mean. Re- in the recent years, it was usually like rockets that could fly five, ten kilometers. No, but yeah. now they are able to reach Tel Aviv. They are able to reach Jerusalem. Uh, Sorry, but I don't think any rockets. Uh, I, I don't have this in front of me. I don't think any rockets hit Tel Aviv in the current conflict. I oh, know that oh, things have improved. Oh yes, uh, they reached it. You know, they uh, Israel has their uh, what's it called Iron Dome. Sure. Uh, yeah. Patriot rocket style mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, anti-rocket uh, protection shield, which is apparently working pretty well. So they are sort of catching most of them. And so far, they have caught all those who made it to the larger cities. They have also caught one that was uh, fired in the direction of the uh, atomic power plant, the only one that uh, Israel is operating, which is also uh, a dangerous place to yeah, shoot rockets a bad at idea. um yeah. so bad idea for everyone if, by the way if they wouldn't have done that you know hundreds of hundreds of rockets would have hit you know israel yeah. 
in uh, inhabited areas and yeah, you could I, I, say okay. this is not 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 something you know uh, yeah. i find it very very difficult in this uh, situation to you know point fingers and say like yeah because you are the more more powerful uh, part here you know you, rules somehow apply in a different way to you which, which i oh. i don't think is true in that case you know? Okay, I, I see now what you're talking about. I just uh, searched for it, and I see the um, some infographics and uh, the, yeah, yeah, the stories of the Iron Dome capturing, uh, capturing, no, uh, knocking yeah. down, I guess, uh, over Tel Aviv. But you know, the, the the only thing I would point out is, I think it does matter. Of course, it matters. There's a, there's a difference in in power in this region, right? One group has most of the power, not all of the power, most of the power over what happens here. Now, the the hard part here also is we say there are rules, right? So we have an Israeli government, an Israeli military, but then you have on the other side, you have a government in Gaza, but uh, then you also have, I don't think they control the entire, you know, who fires a rocket. So this gets very confusing because we say like, hey, look what you did, you know, Hamas, mm -hmm. but but the, uh, people <coughs> fire rockets from, from Lebanon, you know, who yeah, ordered that, that? But these are not, I mean, we're not talking about small rockets that you put on your shoulder we're talking about rockets that lead that need significant logistics to first of all get them there mm -hmm. you know distribute them store mm -hmm. them put them at places and operate them this okay. is not something that can be done by like a few weirdos that like oh yeah now we're firing rockets like you fire rockets when you know germany has won the world cup you know yeah it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's significant delicate very super expensive military material that they're bringing to the table here and i okay. don't believe that the, this is sort of uh, totally uh, unorganized and just done by somebody there is okay. a regime going on in gaza that is under control of what's and whatever is going on in the military sense and, okay. and i think it's totally legitimate to attribute attribute this to uh, hamas although i think there are definitely other groups already you know sort of waiting on hamas demise to take over that are probably mm -hmm. even more crazy and more islamistic and is related and whatever whatnot uh, in case yeah. uh, hamas is actually um brought down in a way that they can't recover from it Yeah, uh, which was probably very difficult, but that's really one of the options I think the Israeli government is sort of coining here. And although mm -hmm. you can say that Netanyahu is definitely not the Mr. Nice Guy and you know not. absolutely not <laughs> known for his liberal take on the world, yeah. uh, but there are hardliners in the Israeli government that are really like much, much, much more annoying and sort of not having moved in to Gaza at this point is sort of also uh, a part of that story that, that Netanyahu isn't really willing to do this until now, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, at least not as long as no Israeli has actually lost his life, uh, which actually happened yesterday. So there was right. like the first uh, rocket strike that actually killed one Israeli, you know, mm -hmm. but the Israelis are always very, you know, it's like, One is already too much for them, right? So, yeah. an <laughs> it's, imbalance here. Yeah, it, it's but, a, it's yeah. a general uh, disaster, and it's also this always, you know, this logic of uh, Hamas. From what I read, you know, Hamas has already lost the support by the people in Gaza, sure, uh, mostly. And this strategy of sort of like, okay, let's go over 
kill some religious students, you know, because we know what this is causing. It's 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 like the the simple logic, like go mm -hmm. for the right wing, people mm -hmm. kill their boys, you know. Yeah. What's yeah. going to happen? The right wing is stepping up, saying like, we have to do about something about this terrorist and the government sure. doesn't react and la la la. You know, and they're a very important election group for uh, Netanyahu's sure. party or the uh, coalition at least. And then this is going up. Then you have those super right wingers, you know, taking action and then they killed in a very ghastly manner this uh, Palestinian boy. You know, mm. and this, mm. of course, brings up the Palestinians and then like, oh, look, the Israelis are so bad, so super bad. And they know we have to kill them all. And then they start launching the rockets. And when they launch the rockets, then Israel is going to react. I mean, just imagine, you know, uh, Belgium would start launching rockets on Holland, you know. I wouldn't stand there and say like, yeah, you know, you, you know, those Belgians just too much fries and, you know, that's how they are. We don't care. You know, that's not more than five rockets a day. <laughs> It's so close. You know, Gaza is just like a few kilometers away from everything uh, there is in Israel. So this is a very severe situation when uh, a group uh, like Hamas is launching hundreds of very dangerous rockets. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course, I think this all calculated because now that Israel is retaliating, which they have to sort of, you know, what, oh, what, should, what, wow. what should they do? Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. just yeah. sit there and take the rockets. Well, well, no, but I, I tell you something that they never, they they're not interested in. At least Netanyahu is not interested in. And you're right, the, 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 the even further to the right people, um, there's no, they're not interested in any other way to do this. Um, and that's what scares me a bit about Netanyahu. Uh, where I mean, we knew this, but. He, he doesn't really believe that there are going to be two states. He's not in favor of it. No. So he's in favor of, what, uh, controlling these regions, occasionally doing something militarily. And when we say militarily, you know, he, he, he bombs, right? He bombs places. Um, so that's disappointing to me because I think that th there's got to be a better way because this is the dumbest way uh, all around. All around is the dumbest way. But the, they, they believe that this does something. This This... This being really tough, because they already promised when the Israeli teenagers were killed, uh, they, they were promising revenge. Netanyahu gave these looming yeah. big speeches. And I was like, oh, boy, you know, this yeah. is not going to end well for anyone. No. Um, but especially especially if you live in Gaza, I have to really stress that. I mean, this thing is, a, it, it's not really a, a country or, a, or even a region of a country. It's, it's just a prison. And, of course, it's a prison that they don't exactly control in there, so they don't know what happens. But... Oh, it's it just must be hell on earth in Gaza, and and you can't say Israel is hell on earth. It does suck, uh, more than sucks. It's it's a it's bad that rockets can be fired on your city. It's cool that you have apparently, although I think that military equipment dealers uh, exaggerate the value of so-called Iron Dome systems. But all right, if they work sometimes, great. Um, I, I think it's it's very fortunate for Israel to have such things because over in Gaza, what you, you get bombed. That's what you do. You know, you get a note that says "get out of your house." Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think that this, above all, West Bank being another uh, something else altogether. Gaza is hell on earth, 
and um yes and it is and i'm not 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 saying like uh, i i think it's uh, going the right way it's not you know and it's yeah. totally true it's 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 disappointing that uh, these reactions are always so predictable and always yes. going on in the same way because that's just like how it is and and, yeah. and it somehow yeah. takes some kind of political action uh, at any part but so far, nobody has found the key to this door. You know, uh, nobody yeah. has found a way how to actually do this without, you know, getting so many people annoyed so quickly. I mean, yeah. uh, let's say that, that Netanyahu is sort of discovering his peaceful inner self, you know. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, it's 500 rockets uh, per hour, but we're just going to stand still, you know. It's like... Two hours later, he could sort of look for a new coalition in the, in, in the government, you know, and, and and that's just how it works because there are so many falcons and so many people who just you know I'm not going to buy in in this route under mm -hmm. the current circumstances under this general uh, situation, which is not only about the relationship between Israel and Hamas, it's mm -hmm. also the relationship to um, the uh, I uh, forgot the, uh, like in South Lebanon, the, um, mm -hmm. what's the name again of this? Uh, Hezbollah. Yeah, the Hezbollah, you know. Then we have ISIS or IS now, oh. you know, in Syria. Yeah. So everything is destabilized. And it's still a wonder that Jordania, for instance, is still sort of, you know, doing okay, you know, within mm -hmm. in, in this whole region of total terror and, and, and civil war and, and, and conflict, you know, uh, at least we can say that the relationship between Israel and Jordania, you know, has sort of worked out for a very long time now. It's not, it's not that this is totally uh, impossible. You know, there, is, there is a way. Yeah. There is a way yeah. to find it. But it's only those sure. two countries who sort of, you know, found a way how to deal with this. Uh, but with all the rest, it's it's just turmoil and, 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 and big shit and, and, and it's not going to heal easily uh, as long as there's, there is no significant overall process in the region. And the last five years have just been a total disaster in that sense. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, actually the... the if I can move from from here to the next, because you you built a good bridge, um, Jordan. You know w what's the big issue in Jordan? I, I don't follow day to day politics, but I know one of their major problems is they're a refugee processing nation right now. You know they're they're the center or one of the main centers for Syrian refugees. So on the list of, I know they could deal with other issues, but uh, one of their big challenges is dealing with the amount of people coming in and, and getting them shelter and, and figuring out what to do, um, which actually brings us to a, a report that came out uh, from uh, Doctors Without Borders, MSF as it's known in French. Um, they released a very harsh report uh, that kind of focuses on the United Nations. No, not kind of, does. Um, and their emergency response uh, methods around the world. And it's very critical. It says basically that uh, the United Nations increasingly is not there, absent from the field in emergencies. When there's a, a real logistical problem, uh, security problem, uh, they're not there. And I guess in the eyes of MSF that they are in this business, they try to be, although they're also saying we're not always perfect in this one, in this report, but they're saying the UN too often abandons uh, a place when it looks dangerous. And I guess the suggestion here is, look, 
You're supposed to be there in emergencies and harsh situations. But what you do more and more, and this is a characteristic of large organizations, is when it's bad, you pull your people out, right? You, you, you avoid risk as much as possible. And this report really looks at places like South Sudan, where we've seen uh, these, these, where the UN was there. And then um, there was, you know, of course, uh, it, it destabilized a, a small civil war of sorts, or at least a coup followed by a lot of violence happened. Um, and the UN was raided and the UN, well, first they left and then their, their uh, places were raided. They're also focusing on the Democratic Republic of Congo, as an example. Jordan, uh, there we are, which is hosting a lot of Syrian refugees. And they're saying in these places, the UN, when things get bad, they've left. Or what they do very commonly, and this I have seen personally, they leave the work to a local organization. Now, there are some advantages, of course, uh, that you can think of immediately. If you leave a local organization to run uh, like a refugee camp or, or some other kind of aid project. But the disadvantage is that a lot of these local organizations don't have the same resources, don't have the expertise, um, risk, right, being punished or otherwise judged by local population. This is where the Red Cross or, or, or actually larger organizations have always been better because they can come in and you can't, you know, they're not, you can't judge them as a, a, some kind of local party or something like that. So it's just a report. It was called uh, Where Is Everyone? And there haven't been too many of these, for, especially from an organization with such a reputation as Doctors Without Borders. Uh, but it's, a, it's an interesting read, and it brings up a lot of places in the world, some of which we've covered on this program, where the UN was, and then they weren't when things got bad, or that, where they didn't show up in time. And the, the suggestion seems to be, you should be there, right? If anyone should be there, it's the United Nations. You should have a, uh, a group of people that's willing to risk Yes, a war situation. Yes, even even death, which you know is a lot to ask. Understood, uh, and and they say again, we as Doctors Without Borders also have our downfalls. We also sometimes look at a situation and decide not to take a risk, and people suffer uh, in that place because we weren't there and we could have helped people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, th this is the catch, right? United Nations. Like we had a story uh, this week. The airport in Libya, I didn't even put this on the list today, but uh, it gets attacked, rocket attack. You know, it didn't take more than 24 hours, and this is how fast they work. Uh, the United Nations, I think, pulled all of its staff from Libya uh, just yesterday or the day before. So it's it's that easy, right? And, mm -hmm. and now, uh, well, not that easy, but... Uh, the go on the good side, uh, these staff live. That's a good thing. And, and hey, they can operate when things get better. Uh, they can go in and make a real difference. On the bad side, there goes Libya in terms of a lot of useful aid, help, uh, you know, food, depending on what's going on. So this is, you know, I can't say um, I'm right there with you, Doctors Without Borders. The UN are a bunch of wussies. But... Um, you know, I understand the need to have a branch that isn't afraid, that isn't run like a, a conservative organization that doesn't take risks. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I'll put a link to the report uh, because that's worth uh, browsing. Um, the link I essentially uh, started with was uh, from trust.org, and it's just a summary of the document. Uh, and it's written by one of the big shots, I think, at uh, Doctors Without Borders. Okay. And I think we'll round the news list off with just a minor note, perhaps, 
Although, hey, these guys stay with us for, for a long time sometimes. Uh, goodbye to my Portuguese, uh, not friend, but uh, director, what president of the EU Commission, Barroso, is out. As of yesterday, our new uh, president of the EU Commission is, what, Jean-Claude Juncker? Yes. Juncker? Juncker? What do we want to call We'll call him Junker. And uh, he's <laughs> in... <a> CK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's now the president. Um, he was voted in. I think only two people were against him, and this becomes significant for the near future. Um, that was, well, most importantly, the UK. David Cameron and his government, as we know from the last EU elections, they are uh, not pro-EU. They want smaller, less. And Juncker is seen as a... Oh, I'm speaking like Dutch here. Juncker is seen as a... Uh, a very pro-EU guy. You'd expect that from a commission president. Um, and he's seen as, uh, uh, well, he has been very heavily supported from uh, Angela Merkel, right? So he's seen as the more German-backed uh, uh, candidate. And maybe this is further reason where the UK always wants to go against Germany and the European Union stuff. Um, but Hungary, by the way, also voted uh, against him. And Hungary also has that whole far-right uh, streak going on, I think, in that country, worth exploring in future newses of the worlds. Um, so there he is. We're going to hear more about him. He's from Luxembourg. He, I think he was prime minister for 15 or 18 years. Um, he promised something to everyone, including, first and foremost, more women in the commission. Apparently, there's a, a lack of women and the EU wants at least one-third of leading positions, they call them, in the EU to be taken by females. And at a, as of this point, I guess that's a problem. They don't have the females. So he's trying to recruit or at least encourage more. Um, but he also promises something to every big group in the EU. If you don't like government, he's promising less EU. If you like the EU and financial stuff, he's promising more EU and financial decisions. He promised Greece, Portugal, and anybody else with a bailout package to have a more democratic troika. I know that plays very well in Portugal. They're very critical of these types of bodies. Um, so here he comes. And, you know, we can debate how powerful the, the commission president is, but... It's a name that we will we'll, we will see a lot, I think. Well, regarding your um, statement that he has got the support of uh, Angela Merkel, I think this wasn't... I mean, I, I, didn't we talk about this before? Uh, I think this wasn't really the case. Um, I mean, oh. it looked like it in the beginning as far as he was sort of the primary candidate for the conservative uh so the the uh, what, not the conservative yeah. conservatives the, the are people's the, uh, party the European yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Party, European yeah. People Party which is made up by uh, the Christian Democrats led by Angela Merkel um, mm -hmm. so you know that that that's the style that the European election had this time you know right, right. with uh, Martin Schulz for the Social Democrats on the other side there was sort of like the primary candidates. Um, although this was a totally new concept and this was just for the parliament. And uh, of course, governments and especially Angela Merkel and her government being the strongest government in Europe, you know, don't really have a particular interest in a strong parliament because a strong parliament means, uh, you know, a weakened council, which is made up by the government, which is mostly dominated by the big countries and which you know from which Germany is the biggest so mm -hmm. once this parliament election was over you know their uh, 
her her support of of Juncker wasn't really as outspoken as you could probably expect it to be. It's like okay. uh, wasn't really this instant outcry of so now that we have won the majority of the votes, you know, it's totally obvious that Juncker is going to be the head of commission. You know, that's not what she did. But okay. once David Cameron was going into his crybaby mode and it's like they're all against us you know that's when he sort of lost the um, this tiny coalition with her because mm -hmm. in that sense that you know UK doesn't really want the influence of the EU in general yeah Angela Merkel just only doesn't want the parliament to be too powerful okay. and that there, was, there was some kind of alignment of interest and i think she was sort of willing to somehow you know keep up the talks with cameron on that issue somehow you know by not immediately supporting him you know mm -hmm. but once he was going totally ballistic on eu in general juncker and special that's where she had to turn sides and now he's in a coalition with uh, uh, what's his name again or or orban you uh, know this crazy guy from hungary hungary oh, yes, yes. and uh, you know that's <laughs> a very bad situation to be in and now cameron is totally isolated in the eu and yeah. it's not going to pay out that well for his plans you know once he gets reelected next year uh, well he has promised the uh, uk um, society to to uh, you know, hold a vote on 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 staying in the in the EU. And I'm not so sure how they're going to vote. You know, uh, if they're actually doing this referendum and the UK is sort of saying goodbye, you know, mm. <laughs> I'm not yeah. so sure what the outcome is going to be. You know, it could be that 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 Scotland is going to divide itself from from England. Then, right? You know, stay in the EU. Mm -hmm. With England not staying in the EU, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, oh. I don't think it's it's, it's going to happen. Uh, I'm I'm thinking UK is going to run into big trouble uh, around these issues. Hmm. Okay, and we will be here to watch it and and try to comment on it and, and in a funny way, occasionally, yes. accidentally. Yeah, we're going to laugh a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, that, that rounds it off for our news list for this week. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a longer show, but hey, how often are we half in Moscow and half celebrating the World Cup? Yeah, not that often. No, so there you go. World Cup victory specifically for Germany, so there you go. <laughs> um, so that, that'll do it, and then next week we will uh, hopefully uh, be back with you. It's summertime, so you never know. Um, anything else, Tim? Should we? Yeah, we, 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 we're not revealing what our plans are, but we're trying oh, yeah. to put a new spin into our show next time. That's right. Uh, hopefully this works. A summer surprise. Yeah, a summer surprise. And then uh, after those those surprises, there will eventually be a summer break too. Okay. <laughs> uh, in August somehow. I'm uh, not sure yeah. how long this is going to uh, happen, but uh, yeah. Long enough for me to, to, to pull pluck pears in yeah. Portugal. And there's yeah. going to be a lot of news, uh, I think, from both of us. Uh, yep. in autumn uh, we're not going to reveal anything about this uh, too teaser. but teaser, uh, teaser. things are happening and things are moving and you can all be 
very happily looking into a bright podcasting future with your hosts, Tim and Mark. <laughs> well said. All right. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye.